everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have DA candidate in Riverside, California, Lara Gresley. Welcome to our show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you are taking on Michael Hestron, who, for those of you who might not be aware, is probably one of the worst DAs around. Um, why is he so bad? <laughs> well, uh, you know, here's the thing. So what we're dealing with in Riverside County, and we've been dealing with for decades, is this very myopic, tough on crime mentality that doesn't seem to really take into account anything outside of the scope of punishment. So, you know, we see overcharging, you know, which gives leverage for uh, defendants to plead guilty early and to plead to, you know, things that they didn't do. That happens a lot. Uh, you know, we see this aggressive approach that really uh, is not making us any safer. Violent crime is up, you know, uh, nearly 30% since 2014, and he's been in office since 2015. So whatever he's doing is just not working, right? So, so there's this idea of, um, you know, people think, well, you have to be tough on crime, you have to be hard on crime, you know, that's, that's what these, these certain individuals want, but yet that's not making them safer. So it seems like we have to do something different, uh, it makes all sorts of, you know, sense to do something different, not just from the perspective of we need reform, we need more fairness, more balance, more reasonableness, but also just from a public safety perspective. So, you know, my approach is, is very logical. It's very holistic. And it takes into account, you know, from even before a crime is committed. So I'm big on crime prevention. You know, I have lots of ideas about that. And then uh, through the entire process, you know, from the moment that a case is filed, we have to be cognizant of what we're doing, you know, how we are going to impact many lives, not just the defendants uh, and not just the victims, but many lives through the community, because there's this sort of ripple effect that occurs, you know, when a case is filed and prosecuted and how it's prosecuted or settled or resolved or what happens in the case. And then also after conviction, right, because we have people getting convicted. Uh, they do their time or do whatever they're required to do. And then they come back into our community and they can't get a job. They can't get a house. They can't support their family. And they go back to committing more crimes, re-victimizing people. So it's just not working. We have to change the sort of program. And that's, that's where I come in. 
And one of the interesting things, and we've been watching this kind of around the country, is that, you know, if a, if a crime happens in San Francisco, it automatically gets blamed on Chase Bodine, uh, the DA. But, uh, and we see it up here in Sacramento, you know, big crime happens, uh, you know, oh, just a massacre in, in Sacramento happened a few weeks ago. Um, but there's no mention of Anne-Marie Schubert when, when those things happen. And the same thing's happening down there in uh, Riverside. Um, you know, as you pointed out, crime's up in Riverside, and yet uh, the Tough on Crime DA doesn't seem to get touched by that. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of that uh, requires sort of informing the the voters informing the citizens of exactly what we're talking about and the evidence-based data that we have we have so many studies that have been done about this that are <clears throat> you know very trustworthy we have statistics we have all kinds of proof and i think the the goal is to educate people because there's this fear really it's it's fear right i mean there's this fear uh that if we don't lock everybody up and we don't have this tough on crime approach then nobody's safe but what we see actually when we do the work and we study it and we, we learn about what's actually happening, we find out that we are less safe when we're not taking this holistic approach, when we're not making rehabilitation the priority, you know, when we're not making crime prevention the priority and, and we're only punishing so that we can look you know, tough on crime and, and get reelected. I mean, that's kind of what's been happening. It's like, let's put it, let's put fear in everybody. So what's interesting is the first uh, article that came out uh, about my candidacy this time around, um, the response from Mike Hestron was, well, crime is up, right? So, you know, sort of this don't uh, elect another DA because, or another candidate because crime is up, so you want me, you know, this kind of fear approach. And then we see it's been switched in the, the process and the debates that we've had where it's like, oh no, this is the safest place to live. So, you know, it's kind of like, well, which one is it? Is, is crime up, you know, and you want to put fear in people or did you figure out that that actually makes you look like you're not doing a good job and now you switch it to, you know? So the point is, I think it's, we have, look, we have politicians, right? That are just going out there and saying what they say and hoping it sticks and, and gets them elected. But I am here to tell you, I am not your typical politician. In fact, I don't call myself a politician. I'm a lawyer and I'm a political candidate in this because I want reform and I know that uh, I can do the job to, to make us all safer if I get into that office. But I'm telling the truth about everything. And, and what I see, I'm a researcher, you know, that's, I'm an appellate attorney. I do research constantly. And I love it. And one of the things that I've been researching are crime statistics and you know, death penalty statistics and just really uh, getting educated so that I can then educate the voters. And that's what I'm trying to do. Crime is up and this tough on crime mentality is not making us safer. Uh, we cannot be afraid of reform. We have to embrace it because we have to look at the evidence. We have to look at exactly what's going on. And this holistic approach that I am proposing that I will do is going to help us be safer. You know, I have a family here. I want to be safe. You know, I want my child to, to be able to walk to school and, and, and feel safe in our communities. 
And it just seems like, uh, you know, there's this fear, uh, like with Chesa Boudin or George Gascon, of course, is the big topic down here, right? Um, that if you elect a reform-minded candidate, then you're going to get somebody who's soft on crime is gonna release everybody and you know it's gonna be a miserable experience. Well, what I can say about that, you know, just to sort of uh, dispel some of those fears is that I am, am not going to overcorrect, I'm going to correct. So what that means to me is, and I, I use this analogy and I've used it several times because in my mind it's, it's a perfect explanation is I am going to just make sure the ship is going straight ahead <laughs> and reaches its destination of justice and doesn't sink. You know, so that's the goal, right? Is to make sure that, that we keep the ship straight ahead. We don't need to overcorrect. We don't need to turn hard left because we've been hard right or whatever, you know, the right left analogy is. The point is that we need balance. We need fairness. We need honest, you know, representation. And that is exactly what I'm going to do is, is you know, reform things that make sense and make sure that everybody understands I am not soft on crime, but I'm not hard on crime. I am just on crime. And, and I think, you know, what's kind of gotten lost in all of this narrative, um, you know, is a point that uh, Fordham Law Professor John Pfaff made, which is that, yeah, crime's up, but crime's up on tough on crime's watch. I mean, there really hasn't been a lot of reform, even in places like San Francisco, um, you know, when you get down to it and you get into the courthouse, really doesn't look very different than it looks down in uh, Riverside. And we've covered our share of cases down there. Um, you know, if you walk into a courtroom, you generally don't see a huge difference from county to county. Yeah, I mean, well, you see a difference. So <laughs> I can tell you from a defense attorney's perspective, you do see a difference uh, big time in, in Riverside County, like, you know, uh, going to LA County and doing a case and then coming to Riverside County. In fact, many defense attorneys, and they've told me this for many years, they will not step foot into Riverside County. And the reason is because we don't have, uh, you know, we don't have line deputies with discretion to settle cases. We don't get reasonable offers. Uh, you know, you have to fight tooth and nail for it. Cases go on forever and they, they, you know, may only settle when you finally get in front of a judge. So it's a very sort of time consuming and lengthy process to defend a case here where the case should resolve, you know, quickly and fairly and uh, easily. So in that respect, I do find that Riverside County has traditionally been absolutely different in that in that sense um, but you're right in that you know crime is happening everywhere right uh, we we see some reform you know in in places like San Francisco and LA and the reason is because you know they're like I said they're they're correcting the wrong in my opinion it might be overcorrecting that's just how I feel about it because of the blanket policies that I don't I don't uh, subscribe to but but having said that, you know, that there have been, I mean, I think there was an LA Times article on the George Gaston uh, situation, and they were saying it, you know, really, there's no proof that, that it's up because of, of George Gaston. So again, you know, people put a spin on stuff, and they kind of go with it. And, and there's just all this fear mongering, I feel like, you know, like, oh, if we try to reform this, it's going to be so bad. And 
So that's when it's really important to do your own research. And uh, honestly, that's what I've been doing is my own research and just trying to get the message out there that, look, I want balance. I want fairness. I want truth. You know, who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want a, appropriate punishment and innocent set free? You know, that it just seems like something that is we could universally agree on, regardless of party affiliation or status or whatever, you know, everybody can, can say, yeah, innocent person set and free. And, you know, somebody who's guilty, get them appropriate punishment and make sure that we can do what we are able to do to rehabilitate them. Because, you know, let's not forget that they're coming back in our community uh, after they serve time or, or their felony conviction or whatever. And we need to make sure that that we're doing what we can to protect the public even after that, right? I mean, that makes sense. So we kind of jump right into the weeds, which is fun. Uh, but for those who don't know you, um, tell us a little bit about your background and where you come from and why you're running for DA. Sure, so I'm originally from Northern California, as you probably know. Um, and sort of did this kind of roundabout detour when I began practicing law and ended up in Riverside County. I um, got a job here as deputy county counsel, was my, my first job in Riverside County. And then I quickly sort of figured out that land use litigation and sitting with the planning commission wasn't exactly what I wanted to do with my career, although I respect the, the attorneys there, absolutely. But I wanted to be in the courtroom. You know, that's really what I always wanted to do. I had worked at the Santa Cruz Public Defender's Office uh, when I was up there. And so I ended up getting a job with the PD, the public defender in Riverside, and then pretty quickly moved on to the conflict panel, which was more my speed because uh, you got to be independent. You know, it was my own law practice and uh, just got cases that were court appointed and, you know, sort of was my own boss, which apparently I like. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> I tried cases. I was on the felony trial team in Riverside. And, you know, I've been just working here for a really long time. I ended up uh, going to private practice uh, a few years later, really enjoyed, you know, being in private practice, got to sort of delve into stuff that I love, post-conviction work, appellate uh, work, and uh, lecture lawyers around the state on um, all kinds of things from motions to trials to uh, appeals and making a record and all that kind of stuff. Uh, work, did some work in the U.S. Supreme Court, really, really cool experiences there. Um, and I just have this, this passion for the law and for, for justice and righting wrongs, you know, and so appellate work was, was really um, up my alley. I love research and writing. Uh, the scholarly sort of academic aspect of the law is, is, you know, kind of what I love so much. But, but what happened was, you know, I, all these years I've seen so many injustices, right. And just watching people just sort of get, you know, railroaded. I mean, there's really no other way to say it. And it sounds cliche, but it's true because of this overcharging that I've seen and just the, the sort of lack of, of any kind of reasonableness uh, in, in resolving cases here. So uh, I have a story though, because I have a friend who was, was wrongfully convicted. Um, he's an innocent man who was wrongfully convicted and spent 13 years in prison. Uh, he actually, I met him because I'm a singer as well. And I was in a band. So that was my 
my I would do trial by day and we've then, seen your Facebook. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I would go like I mean, I haven't shown too much of the, you know, the the big band ones, but the acoustic projects I put up there. But yeah, I would uh do that by night. And anyway, he was the sound engineer and we became friends. This was, you know, maybe I don't know, 15 years ago. And then I learned his story. And I think um, that kind of woke me up in a way because, you know, I, you get, you get used to sort of, you get jaded and you get used to just kind of seeing these injustices and trying to make them right. And, you know, fighting the good fight and all that. But what woke me up was that this actually really happens and, and really just learning about um, how it went down and it was out of Riverside County. And, you know, I just felt like, what can I do? You know, what can I, how can I use my life and my career, my skill set to make a difference? And uh, I pretty much figured out, honestly, that, that if I could save one person from being wrongfully convicted, that would be enough. You know, it would be enough for me uh, because I saw what he went through and what he still goes through with the stigma of that conviction. That's it's just a terrible, terrible tragedy. And, you know, along the way, um, because I decided to run for D.A., because I, I realized, oh, my gosh, this is the way that I can, you know, change things, like really change things. And then sort of getting into all the other areas that I could impact positively for everybody uh, you know, convinced me that this, this was a calling that I, I really needed to do this. And, you know, along the way, I've met mothers of, of, of children who are wrongfully convicted, who are innocent, um, and just hearing their stories and, and really um, becoming passionate about that kind of work. I have my own clients um, that are in prison right now. I do habeas work, as, as you probably know. And I focus my time because I am still working, by the way, and campaigning. It's not easy, <laughs> but but I, I do Hades work. So essentially what I'm trying to do is get innocent people out of prison. Um, and, you know, you you reach sort of a brick wall at some point when a, when the court won't overturn it. Uh, I have a case right now that the court has not overturned. It's been all the way to the California Supreme Court. I have two expert witnesses that say my client is innocent in their opinion, and she's in prison for life. Uh, so we're now going to the federal courts uh, for that. And really what I came to realize in doing habeas work as well, and because of my friend's story, is that the DA is the one who can impact this the most. Um, the DA is the one who decides you know, who to file, uh, against and the DA is the one who decides ultimately whether they want to consent to vacating a conviction in a habeas case, whether there is in a, in a proof of innocence. Um, and once I learned that, it was confirmation that yeah, I'm on the right track here. Uh, this is something that I need to do. And really, um, it's been a difficult thing because you know, I obviously have been on the other side of the fence. I've been a defense attorney and um, that's how I've been fighting against injustice. And now I want to fight for justice. Some people don't understand, <laughs> you know, why I want to do this. But really, I've always been somebody who just believes in justice. And, uh, you know, I, I could have easily been a prosecutor. I was, I was offered, I think, three different times, once in Riverside. 
I was offered the job and I just never took it. Ultimately in Riverside, the reason was because I didn't agree with, with the sort of tyrannical approach, you know, that, that happens in that office. So I turned it down. Um, and that was the right choice for me. But the thing is, I am not against law enforcement um, just because I've been a defense attorney. I am for law enforcement. You know, I want to uh, help them. I want to support them. I want to use my, my skills and my knowledge, uh, especially with constitutional law, to you know, train officers on how to, how to do things the right way. Uh, so that people's rights aren't violated. And I want to um, implement, you know, ethics training uh, in, in the prosecutor's office because I find that uh, we're still dealing with prosecutorial misconduct happening. And a lot of times, I mean, the vast majority of times, it's just a mistake, right? It's a lack of training. Uh, you know, I don't think that, that prosecutors get into this business to just break the rules, you know, um, but we have to we have to do something different because in my research I found that you know the wrongful convictions that have happened uh, in a fairly recent study was thirty nine percent of those were prosecutorial misconduct you know they were overturned for that for that reason so so we just have to do things differently and I am um, fighting hard you know to to make changes and it's not easy uh, as you know as a no party preference candidate. I've taken a hard stance on that because it's who I am, you know, and I, I feel that if I, if I change who I am, I feel I've already lost, you know, I have to be who I am, um, let people know who I am, uh, they can trust me, I'm authentic, I'm honest from the beginning, does it, does it uh, make it difficult? Yes, it does, because I'm not uh, a Democrat or a Republican Um but again, this is a nonpartisan race. So I believe that this is the purest and the best and the most honest way to run for this office is to let everybody know I am going to serve you. Doesn't matter who you are, you know, I'm going to serve you in this county. So hopefully that was a long-winded, but <laughs> you know, <laughs> what I'm trying to do and, and why I'm doing it. Well, it's interesting listening to your story because uh, I actually got into this space in, in kind of a similar way. Um, I, I got, uh, I was doing news and uh, a family called me up and said that their loved one had been wrongly convicted. This is back in 2009 and I didn't know what wrongful convictions were even. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I go to this guy's sentencing hearing, he had just been convicted. And suddenly he gets 378 years in prison. And, and it's just an eye-opening thing uh, for the crime that he was convicted of, which is not a good crime. Um, but you wouldn't have thought that it'd be, you know, like the equivalent of four or five life sentences. Um, and, you know, interestingly enough, on last Friday, I went to uh, his latest habeas hearing um, and it's exactly as, as you described. I mean, uh, the DA is fighting tooth and nail. They've done all these interviews in prison just trying to trap this guy. Uh, and it's unbelievable how much uh, resources they've put into keeping an innocent guy in prison. And absolutely, the DA matters because, you know, with, uh, with a DA with 
your mentality, uh, I think it'd be a very different story as to what, what would be taking place right now. Um, so um, in terms of, you know, what you want to do if you are elected, um, you know, what, what are some of your policy uh, goals? Well, so number one, I mean, obviously I've been harping on this a lot is uh, I'm going to end overcharging. So, you know, we're not going to overcharge cases anymore. That's, that's sort of a, you know, an overarching principle that will be implemented immediately. And that's again, going to take training. It's going to take guidelines um, for filing deputies. It's going to be, you know, not something that I can snap my fingers and make it happen right away, but that is absolutely going to be a major priority because uh, I can give you several instances of cases in which this has occurred and it's been going on for some time. And I think that we have to kind of <clears throat> almost like reprogram the mindset, you know, in the DA's office uh, and just be really careful about that and real cognizant of, of our filing practices, essentially. Uh, I also want to implement a blind justice filing policy, which, you know, would uh, prevent the, the line deputies from knowing the suspect's race, because, you know, again, that, that ACLU report that came out that I'm sure you're aware of uh, showed that Riverside County was uh, pretty bad in that department. So we have to change that. Um, <clears throat> some other things, you know, the, the ethics stuff is really, really important to me. So I want an independent ethics officer to be appointed uh, who sort of runs a committee and any allegations of prosecutorial misconduct will be submitted to that ethics officer and investigated. And then um, there'll be transparency and accountability should, should they, you know, should he find or she find any violations. Um, I also want the ethics officer to lead trainings, you know, so we're gonna have significant training on prosecutorial misconduct, uh, what it is, what it looks like, and just sort of ethics in general. And that person will be available also for, for prosecutors to call, you know, with questions if they have sort of an on-the-spot decision to make in trial, you know, so it's a really good idea for lots of reasons. Other things I want to do for crime prevention, um, I want to create a homeless uh, task force that is going to combine public and private uh, individuals in, in different agencies and, and service providers to kind of come together and figure out what we can do to prevent crime, to find services for, for the homeless who are, you know, willing to get those services. I know there's this sort of uh, idea, you know, Mike Hestron has talked about it before, that, oh no, they don't, they don't want, you know, the services. Well, I, you know, I have a different perspective because I've talked to a lot of them. I have friends who work with uh, homeless, uh, homeless foundations. And so I hear a different story. Um, again, my, my perspective is unique in that regard. And so I want to make sure that we're doing everything we can to prevent the crime and then also um, get individuals off the street who we can get off the street. You know, we have to, we have to try. So I have some ideas in that department as well. Um, I definitely want to work towards cash bail reform uh, because it's a problem. You know, I, it adds to our jail overcrowding. So it's a problem for lots of reasons, but it's, it's really unjust. And, and we know why, because if somebody with money gets the same charge as somebody without money, you know, the person with money gets out and the other person stays in. It's just a basic sort of fundamental issue. 
So what I want to do is, is work towards that. It's not going to happen overnight because we have the, the problem, uh, the sort of practical problem that judges can preventively detain individuals. So we have to be cognizant of, of that issue and find ways of, of sort of dispelling the fears that judges have about releasing people um, and find monitoring programs and find, find ways to do that. So I'll be working hard on that as well. And um, let's see what else. You know, well, how about uh, police accountability? Since Pestrin uh, is notorious for taking money from law enforcement. Lots of money. Yes. So police accountability is not going to be an issue with me there. You know, somebody asked at the first debate, one of the, and I've done like three or four now, um, but the first one, they asked a question, well, how would you treat, you know, a law enforcement officer accused of a crime? And my answer was, I would treat them like anybody else accused of a crime. I mean, I don't know why we have this idea that we have to treat them differently, right? If somebody's accused of the crime, did they commit a crime or not? It's just that the analysis is different, right? Because the there there's certain reasons that they might be able to use, uh, you know, the force that they used or whatever. So it might, there might be a defense of some sort, but, but law enforcement need to be treated, you know, just like anybody else, they need to be treated with dignity and respect as well. Um, you know, and, and if they're innocent, I'm going to absolutely, you know, want their exoneration. You know, I won't, it's just the same as anybody else. It's like, if they didn't do anything wrong, they're safe with me. Right. Um, they're absolutely safe with me because I'm all for setting innocent people free. So I will go to bat for them 100%. But if they did something wrong, you know, they need to be held accountable because the public needs to know that we are going to prosecute law enforcement who abuse their power and who hurt people. I mean, that's really what it is. If they victimize somebody, then they committed a crime, then they need to be held responsible. There's There should be no fear. Um, by law enforcement of having me in office because I'm going to fully support them 100%, um, give them all kinds of you know resources, whatever I can, training and support. But they will know that if they break the law, they're going to be held accountable. Uh, it's just the way it has to be. It's it's the only thing that's fair and the only thing that's right. So you know it's justice, right? That's what it is. So I don't I don't really um, understand the whole idea there was somebody in the 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 audience who shook their head when I said I I'm going to treat them like everybody else you know like they, there has to be some some different you know analysis I understand the law can be different but again they need to be treated like anybody else if they're guilty they need to be punished appropriately if they're innocent they're going to be set free period so uh obviously I don't take any money from law enforcement I'm not going to take any money from law enforcement because I just feel that it's the appearance of um, bias and uh, it's just not good. You know, it, it breaks down the public's trust and I, we need to earn it back, you know, and that's going to be a huge part of what I want to do too, is, is earn back that trust. Um, what would you say your biggest criticism of Hestron is? Well, you've heard me harp on the Costco shooting case like a lot probably <laughs> uh you know so if you're talking about there's look there's a lot of criticisms i get it it's it's you know nobody's perfect but there's some things that i just 
can't get past. And one of those is the decision to convene a grand jury in the Costco shooting case. I do not believe that it should have gone to a grand jury. I believe he should have, you know, filed charges exactly what the attorney general filed. That's what I would have filed, um, given everything I know about the case. And, you know, I criticize it because, again, it's, it's, you know, sort of right in line with the, he doesn't want to prosecute law enforcement and all that money that he gets from law enforcement, you know, it, it just, it looks really bad. <laughs> it looks really like he's not being fair. So what we have is, you know, this, this um, off-duty law enforcement officer who shoots Kenneth French and kills him, shoots his parents as well, severely injuring them. I think from 22 feet away at that point. And it's in a crowded Costco, by the way, which is problematic just in and of itself. And then we have, uh, you know, Mike Hester not filing charges instead goes to a grand jury. So there's a no bill, no indictment. Now it's sealed. Now nobody gets to know what happened. Nobody gets to know what he asked for, right? What did he ask for? Uh, what did he go for, for, for the indictment? And nobody gets to see anything about it because it's completely sealed. And I have a problem with, with, you know, abusing the grand jury process or overutilizing it for various reasons. One of which is it sort of circumvents the preliminary hearing process in a felony. And the preliminary hearing process, right, is where it's a screening uh, of the case and the defense attorneys there gets to ask questions, gets to test the evidence and the witnesses. And, you know, it's a public hearing. So we're circumventing that. And now we've got like the secret proceeding because there's a no bill. So I have a problem with that. Um, and then we see, you know, what I've sort of said are the, the circumstantial evidence of the fact that he should have filed charges, which is number one, um, the officer was fired, right? Number two, the, the family had a, a federal jury come down on a, in a wrongful death suit uh, for $17 million, okay, $17 million. And then number three, the attorney general files charges. So I just feel like that was, you know, a big uh, problem for me um, and just watching that family suffer and not get justice. You know, they were victims of violent crime and they didn't get justice. And so we're talking about, you know, some tough on crime approach, but is, does that only apply when, you know, it's not law enforcement that's accused, you know, that kind of double standard. And then his, his response was that he did prosecute one law enforcement officer in his two terms. And that law enforcement officer's name was Oscar Rodriguez. And Oscar Rodriguez was initially cleared of murder charges and only, I think, three years later, after a wrongful death suit revealed inculpatory evidence in a deposition, that's when he filed charges. So, again, it's like, what's going on here? Are we not, you know, really proactively trying to get justice for victims of violent crime when it's a law enforcement officer that's accused? Was the investigation unreliable, untrustworthy? Like, what's going on here? So, that's the one that he did file against, but it was years later and initially cleared, you know? So it's a little disingenuous to say, oh, I'm fair because I filed against this guy is what I'm trying to say. Uh, you know, so, 
So I guess that would be my biggest criticism is he takes hundreds of thousands of dollars. I mean, maybe, you know, David, like maybe, you know, the, the number more than I do. I mean, I think it's, it, it's gotta be a million by now. I don't even know. Just know in general, he took more money from law enforcement than any other DA, which is actually saying a whole lot because DAs take money from law enforcement. That's what they do, right? <laughs> so if you're on top of that list and, you know, it's not like Riverside's a small county or anything, but it's not LA either. So, I mean, that, that says something. It does. It does. And I think um, at one point you're talking about, you know, Sacramento's DA. At one point, I think she was like the second most or something. It was, yeah. So I don't know. It's, it's really troublesome for me. And it was troublesome the last time. And I talked about it, the debates in the last election. And, you know, somebody asked me later, they're like, so what you're saying is that if, if law enforcement wanted to give you $500,000 for your campaign, you would say no. And I was like, that's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> it's like, people can't believe, you know, that I won't take money um, from law enforcement. It's like, look, you know, number one, the, the money is an issue in and of itself, because I don't think it should, we should be pouring uh, this kind of money into to political campaigns in a local DA race and a nonpartisan race. You know, why is this, why is it like that? First of all, it just bothers me. It's like, every time I see these dollars, you know, coming in, you know, their disclosures and stuff, it's like, I just think how many mouths can we feed with this money? You know, just like, it's, it's, I don't know. I, I don't like it at all. So um, no, I would not take that, that kind of money. Uh, I don't believe in it. I believe that things need to change. I believe in the voters too. I believe that um, people can see past, you know, phony sort of uh, taking money and I'm going to win because I just have the most commercials, you know? So maybe, maybe that's a naive perspective, but it's, it's the one that I have, you know, I still have faith and, in the voters to make the right choices. And I'm just trying to get my message out there. Um, don't have as much money as those guys, but I'm, I'm doing what I can to get my message out there to let everybody know who I am, what I want to do, and that they can trust me to do it. If people want to find out more about you, uh, where can they go? So the website, uh, laragressley.com or lara4da.com, a few different, few different, uh, website names will redirect there but laragressley.com is probably the best place um you know social media face i'm on facebook i don't have a huge social media platform right now um but you'll you'll find like links and stuff like that also youtube because apparently if you if you search me on youtube my debates will come up and stuff <laughs> at least a few of them and uh so those are probably the best places and, you know, I just, um, I just think that it's time for change. And I really think that Riverside voters are ready. I think the citizens are ready for change here. 2.4 million people in this county. It's a huge county. Hard to get the message out, but I ran the last time. Uh, and I did get, you know, about 34% of the vote. I only campaigned for like four months in 2018 and raised, you know, half of what I raised this time. Um, and you know, I got almost a hundred thousand votes. So people are ready. They've, they've proven that they're ready. 
and I believe that I am the right candidate out of the three for various reasons, not the least of which is that I am the only one who has ever been a defense attorney. I have never been part of that, what I believe is a toxic win at all cost culture in the Riverside DA's office. I've never been in that environment. Um, I've always had the freedom to do absolutely what is right. And uh, I believe that, that that says a lot. And I have innovative you know, perspective, I have innovative approaches because I have that unique perspective. So I can see problems that they just can't, they can't see. Which means well, I can- We are out of time, um, but I wanted to thank you for coming on our show. Uh, Lara Gressley, who's running for DA in Riverside County. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening, Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.